This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here are your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Once again, it is the Human Action Podcast, joined by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Bob, how are you doing today? Doing well, Jeff. Thanks. Well, last week, the show was about losing control of money, the idea that money seems unbound or almost undefined in our society because governments, especially Western governments and Uncle Sam, are producing so much of it, either in the form of actual fiscal currency or debt. And, you know, right right out of that show comes an excellent example this week in the news from an economist named Mariana Mazzucato. Uh, she's an Italian. She, again, she teaches at University College London, and she basically came on and was speaking in the context of German military aid to Ukraine, wherein the German chancellor, without involving parliament, by the way, just came and told parliament that he was going to create, anoint another 100 million euro to send to Ukraine for their war effort. And she was saying, well, see, here's an example of how during wartime we can just print money. And so we have to get away from this idea of austerity. We have to stop treating sovereign national governments like a family. Treasuries operate differently because they're sovereign. They can issue currency. So they don't have a household has to go out and raise an income in order to spend. She says governments don't have to do that. They can simply print the money. So we have this old fashioned idea that governments get money either by taxing or by borrowing. And according to her and uh, Warren Mosler and some other people in the modern monetary theory movement, that's not true at all. Governments have the ability to simply produce currency in electronic form or physical form at will. So let's go ahead and take a look at the clip real quick, and then we'll come back. This whole notion that you run a government like you run a household and you actually have to earn tax revenue to even be able to spend and otherwise you have to you know, uh, uh, do austerity is, is a complete myth. Governments create money all the time. We do that for war. I mean, look at what happened in Germany recently. Overnight, they created 100 billion euros for the war effort. So why do we actually treat our social problems around health, around public education, public transport, climate change as urgently as we treat climate? and then use tax to redistribute in a progressive way, not a regressive way, and to steer the economy to be more inclusive and sustainable. That should be the question, not nitpicking on one number. So Bob, watching this, you know, I was reminded of the old idea of greenbackers, and I searched around a little bit. You actually wrote an article back in 2012 for the American Conservative talking about the greenbackers around the Civil War period in the 1860s who issued a bunch, uh, you know, the U.S. government issued a bunch of unbacked paper notes to fund the Union war effort. But we can even go back to the Revolutionary War. The Continental Congress issued Continentals. Uh, Those didn't work very long. People didn't accept them. So they went out and borrowed from the Dutch government. They borrowed from U.S. creditors. They borrowed from the French government. Uh, But nonetheless, there is this longstanding idea that sovereign governments can print money. They don't have to borrow it and they don't have to tax necessarily to get the money they need to buy the things they want. Well, yeah, you're right. And just for people who aren't familiar with those historical episodes, you know, there's the phrase not worth a continental, which, you know, arose because, uh, you know, the currency got debased so much in the so-called Civil War of the United States. People are pretty aware, I think, that the Confederacy just started printing money when they got desperate near the end and trashed their currency. I think the prices rose something like 9,000% in the southern states during the course of the war. But even at the on the Union side, I believe prices rose something like 75%. And again, it's because 
this was an era where the dollar was defined in terms of gold or silver. And so, but they, that all went out the window during the war. And the, you know, this is a theme you see both on the left and right where economists will say, oh yeah, you know, tie in the, the monetary unit to the precious metals. Maybe in normal times that makes sense. But you know, when there's an emergency, like a war, then everything goes out the window. And we saw that, you know, in the clip where uh, progressives understandably want to link it and say that, hey, if the right all of a sudden understands priorities when it comes to funding wartime efforts, why can't we use the same urgency when it comes to climate change or fighting poverty? Right. Everything's a war. Inequality, racism, climate change, transphobia, uh, housing. January 6th was January an insurrection. 6th. Yeah, right, it's we, always everything's a war. Right. So if everything is a war, we should be on constant war footing. And that includes a wartime economy. So after hearing this woman's remarks on BBC, I wrote a, a quick article this week, which, to which we shall link, called A Permanent Wartime Economy. And I brought up this idea that there's a whole segment of economists who think there really aren't natural limits on government spending other than, let's say, hyperinflation. And so in her brief remarks there to the BBC, she is channeling Warren Mosler, who's someone, Bob, you've gone head to head with, I know, in a debate. And also you sent over to me uh, a PDF of his seven deadly innocent frauds of economic policy, which was interesting. Uh, and he starts off with this whole idea that, you know, we have a false notion that governments need to get money from people in order to spend. He says it's the other way around. As a matter of fact, governments produce money. That's how people get money. They send some of it back in the form of taxes. But if it weren't for government either borrowing or producing the money in the first place, it wouldn't exist. And so uh, I guess we could say that Dr. Mazzucato is a, an mmt -er or a Moslerite. But it's interesting to me that Mosler brings up this idea that you know, taxes aren't really necessary to fund government for the aforementioned reasons, but they are necessary to, as a break on the economy when it overheats, or I guess in, in times of a downturn, we could reduce taxes and keep more money in private hands. But he just, he's viewing income taxes, or I guess taxes in general, purely as a regulatory mechanism on people's conduct. And I think that's, I guess that's refreshing in a sense, that that progressives are willing to own up to that. Right. So you're right. There, there is a sense in which there's a, a frankness of it. Like there's, you know, hey, they're just being quite transparent about what, what their motivations are. Uh, because uh, it, Thomas Piketty did the same thing, um, you know, in, in his book, Capital in the 21st Century. Well, is either that one? Yeah, I think it was that one where near the end where he starts talking about his proposals for what he literally calls a confiscatory income tax mm -hmm. and then even a wealth tax too. And he mentioned, and he says, the tax rates of the level I'm advocating, it's not to raise revenue, it's to prevent certain people from having too much money, right? Obviously, right. he openly says that, and you know what I mean? So it's, there is a certain candor involved where they're saying, you know, we don't need, we have a printing press, it's not that we need to raise the money for valuable programs, and taxes are this regrettable necessity. No, we can just print the money to pay for what we want, it's to make sure, you know, and, and this clip you just played from the BBC there, you know, the, the economist, she was openly saying that this is about social policy. This is to redistribute wealth. You know, some people we think have too much and others need. So that's what the, the point of it's, it's more targeted. In other words, just printing money and spending things, you might not be able to get the outcome you want. And so you have to have the ability to go in and just take money from people too. And you know, that's what, why not do, why not leave that option on the table? So th there is that element uh, more generally though. Yes. That I debated Warren Mosler. We'll, we'll put a link folks. Uh, if you want to see it, um, 
And there is a, it's a very interesting rhetorical style they have, the MMTers. They, they come off and just say, we're just explaining how the world works. And, and, and it's, you know, this idea that there's a, this, a budget that's necessary, that, that's not true. And when it comes to governments with the printing press, so it's, it's a bit funny because I remember even as a, you know, high schooler reading free market economics, Murray Rothbard, people like that, they all said there's, there's three ways the government can finance spending, taxing, borrowing, or printing money. So this isn't some new alchemy that the MMTers are letting us know about. People knew that monetary inflation was a way to pay bills. And the problem was that doesn't create real wealth. That just, you know, taxes the public in terms of their ability to, to use money to, to buy things. You know, so it's just redistributing resources through a different mechanism. And I think we should point out that Mosler is a fund guy. He's not a, an economist per se. And I assume pretty successful and wealthy. And he was a pretty good-natured guy in the debate, if I recall. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he's an interesting guy. I interviewed him on my own podcast. Um, he's an, a fascinating guy. He, like, invented uh, cars that were—it wasn't like the Indy 500, but, I mean, like, cars that were in some race somewhere that mm -hmm. he designed. I mean, he's, he's an interesting guy. And you're right. He, I think he was, like, a bond trader or something mm -hmm. when he just, you know, maybe, like, the late 70s, early 80s, something like that, if I'm getting the timing right— and yeah, he was just looking at the Fed accounts and things and just all of a sudden was noticing patterns and kind of just flipped things around. So again, where they're coming from when you first hear it, and I mentioned this too in the review I wrote for Mises.org on Stephanie Kelton's book, it's, um, you know, they, they just kind of flip things around. And so when you first hear it, it's like, oh, no, it's, it's not that the government needs to tax to get money to spend. It's that their deficit spending is where the new money comes from. Otherwise, how would anyone have any dollar bills? Mm -hmm. And if you just thought the world began with, you know, in 1913, that might make sense. But historically, no, money existed before governments printed fiat money. And so, you know, it just shows that as a matter of history, these sort of like glib uh, demonstrations by which they seem to prove their point are actually not correct. And so in Mosler's world, a government deficit is a private surplus. In other words, there's two sides of the balance sheet. And so if the government's running surpluses, the private sector, there's some wealth somewhere that's being created to balance it. And he uses this analogy of a referee during a sports match. He says, you know, when a retiree gets their social security check in the electronic age, we just credit $2,000 to their account. And, and we just assign them $2,000 worth of points, uh, almost like in an NFL game, you kick a field goal, the referee assigns you three points, right? He didn't have to go borrow the three points from a pool of points owned by the NFL that reduced the overall pool by three points. No, he just assigned three points anew. And so the break on all of this, according to the MMTers, and let's be fair to them. Um, I would call, I want to use the term fiscalist, the idea that you use fiscal policy instead of monetary policy. The idea here is that unless we have really severe price inflation, we ought to be running government printing presses to pay for all kinds of good and happy and salutary things like Social Security benefits for people, like houses for poor people, like AFDC and WIC for poor people, like uh, missiles or tanks or whatever for Ukraine. And so absent serious inflation, we should be doing this. And Mr. Moser's pretty upfront, and he says, well, look, uh, this isn't something we should have to kick in during a slowdown. He said, we should already have government running at a high enough level and printing at a high enough level that the slowdown simply doesn't occur in the first place, or if it does, it's minor because we're already at this sort of optimal level of government. I guess the question, and I don't know if MMTers 
or Moslerites or Greenbackers have ever addressed this. Maybe you know, Bob. But what about deflation? In other words, it's not the, the question is not only do we have significant price inflation or even hyperinflation. The question is, what would prices be absent monetary and fiscal intervention by the state or by the central bank? And in fact, they may be quite deflationary, which you and I would view, again, as a salutary thing. A lot of economists wouldn't. So has anyone ever addressed the idea of falling prices in this mindset? So off the top of my head, I can't remember an explicitly MMT person talking about a regime, you know, where there's quote, good deflation, by mm -hmm. which you, know, you mean gently falling prices. Um, I, so I think in their framework, you know, if I were going to steel man the MMT position, they could they would say something like, yeah, it, it, so long as there was full employment, that's fine. You know, you could imagine if, you know, expectations were such, everyone saw it coming, blah, 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 that prices were gently falling. And as long as there's full employment. But what we're talking about is we know in practice in the real world that there's massive periods where there's high unemployment, resources are idle. And that's clearly a waste. There's, you know, the capitalist system's not functioning well. And that's, you know, when there's uh, a role for the government to come in and, and fill the gap. So I, I guess what, from an Austrian perspective, what I would, would say to that possible stance is simply that those boom-bust cycles don't come out of a vacuum. That it's because of prior government intervention, you know, monetary expansion, inflation, uh, credit inflation, pushing interest rates to artificially low levels that causes an unsustainable boom that then gives rise to the bust. So it's, they're not just, well, there's this crazy, you know, quirk in the market economy. We're coming in to patch it. It's what we're seeing is the symptoms from the previous quote medicine that the, you know, MMT camp wants to double. So, you know, that, that's what, what I would say. So to, to your point, yes, Jeff, if, if they would just stop meddling and let truly free market money and banking prevail, then you wouldn't see these massive boom bust cycles anymore. There wouldn't be something that quote needed to be fixed. Well, also, if government is printing money in large amounts and purchasing things, that, I mean, it's again, it's not increasing the number of resources uh, or, or the amount of wealth available in the economy. It's just producing more currency, more money, electronic for the most part. So how does that distort the way real resources and real wealth are allocated? It would, it would appear to be highly inefficient in that government is making the spending decisions, deciding whether to send that to Ukraine or little old ladies or housing for the poor or whatever, as opposed to the marketplace. So uh, we would imagine that there's all kinds of economic inefficiencies in the allocation of resources and real wealth as a result. Do they acknowledge this? Yeah, so I when I had Moser on my show, I, and again, it was very friendly, and I, I don't think I uh, fully responded when you asked me before. Yes, Moser himself is extremely charming. We were you know chatting before the debate we had at Columbia, and I actually had to walk away because like no 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 he's gonna I, I got to be a you know tough fight. eye of the tiger going in this thing. Um, so yeah, he's a super friendly guy, and I, but I was asking him, uh, you know, just to get get an idea of like, are we just quibbling over some you know, uh, rounding errors here, like when unemployment's a little bit too high, or do you think there's massive resources just left on the table in a capitalist system? If the government doesn't do, you know, quote, do MMT or implement it, you know, can we, can we just easily go to Mars without cutting back on anything else? Like I, that, I think that's what I asked him. I love slides. And, um, so I don't know. I don't remember. If he literally said yes, like free trips to Mars, basically with all the surplus that we're not reaping, but he did. He was in favor of a of a basic job guarantee mm -hmm. that he wanted the federal government to just say I forget what the number was, but like a you know a, a livable salary 
and people just show up and you know it's like it i guess they can't be drunk or something but otherwise able-bodied people show up to work i don't even think they have to be able-bodied just show up and you know they they have this guaranteed job and he thought that would promote all sorts of efficiencies in particular because his concern was during a recession when people get laid off and they're out of work for a while then all of a sudden they're untouchable that employers start thinking well how come you've been out of work for eight months and so then so that was the kind of like you know, big problem and inefficiency in the market that he thought somebody who, because they say MMT is always right. It's not that, a, you know, a government does MMT or not. It's like saying, does the government do physics in their mind, but properly appreciates the lessons of MMT. That's the kind of thing he thought they could, they could salvage that they, so there's lots of, I guess, slack in the labor market that would no longer be wasted. So it seems their rebuttal to austerians like us is always that, look, MMT is just descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Mm -hmm. We're not making these value judgments. We're just telling you how the world works. So that's an interesting little sleight of hand. But there's also this idea uh, that I think is is overwhelmingly prevalent on the left amongst economists of a certain particular stripe, which is that in general, at almost all times, uh, there's lots of slack in the economy. You know, whether that's human resources in the form of labor or, uh, you know, whatever capital, there's there's way too much capital, way too much layered uh, uh, labor just sort of sitting around uh, underutilized. And this is this inherent flaw in capitalism or the market economy. And so we need government to make all of this uh, unutilized or underutilized capital and labor come to life and start producing. So we're always below, whatever it is, we're always below this magical amount of spending or borrowing that should be happening. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's, I think, the fundamental disagreement. And that's why they think that there's all these programs we could fund. And it's not that you'd have to cut back on, other, on you know these other things you like. That's this, you know, this uh, surplus that's just being wasted every year, this missed opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so, again, my response would be that, well, in periods where clearly there is like massive unemployment and you see empty factories and whatnot just idling, that's because there was a prior unsustainable boom. So that's not just, oh, that's capitalism for you. Like that's you know, due to the very types of policies that uh, Mosler and others are, are recommending here. Um, but then beyond that, that you know, suppose there really is a, a so-called glut of labor or, you know, certain factories are empty. How, how do we know? how they should be deployed, how they should be reintegrated back into the economy. You, know, you got some people out of work. They've got all possible kinds of skills, preferences. Maybe some are willing to move three states. Some aren't. How do you decide what they should do? Well, there's no central planner that can do that. You need to just sit back and let the decentralized market process work. Right. And you don't aid things by having the government come in and have sort of arbitrary. Well, when I say arbitrary, I mean, it's, it's unpredictable amounts of spending here and there based on whoever is in power at the moment. Right. So that's that's not actually aiding the, the reintegration process. So it's it sounds very callous and, oh, you don't understand the pain, but it's still the, nonetheless the case that, yeah, the best medicine is to literally do nothing from the point of view mm -hmm. of the central bank. And the I mean, you can cut taxes. You could do things like that if you want to get rid of regulations. But in terms of, you know, spending per se or the monetary authorities, you're not actually doing any favors by pumping in more money that's just created out of thin air. Well, in effect, I believe, Professor Mazzucato is, a, is essentially calling for a permanent wartime economy. 
She says, look, we can do this for Ukraine. We create money all the time. Why can't we do it for, and she brings up climate change, among other things. So if you look at the article I wrote earlier this week, I linked to an article in The Atlantic, which shows periods of debt relative to GDP in U.S. history. And so, as I mentioned earlier, the United States was literally born into debt. It was born owing lots of money for its prosecution of the Revolutionary War, and then, the, as the chart shows, there are various periods, especially the Civil War, World War I, Great Depression, World War II, where government borrowed a lot more and ran much bigger deficits. And I think in the Moslerite Mazzucato view, uh, th- these big swings in debt would just never would have occurred, right? We would have just ramped up spending to account for those things, and then kept it at a much higher level between these conflicts or these important historical events in U.S. history, like the Great Depression, and there'd be a great leveling. In other words, not only would we be more prosperous, but we wouldn't have these tremendous recessions because we would just have uh, the, the money available for Uncle Sam to pick up any slack in the private economy as as necessary. So you can see that there's a lot of allure to this idea. You can see why this would be politically very sellable. I mean, after all, I mean, it's a, it's a good point. Why should the federal government have to borrow money and pay interest to creditors in this circuitous fashion with a central bank and treasury debt and this sort of three-step that happens when we uh, monetize debt by buying treasury assets from commercial banks. Why should we have all this complexity? Why shouldn't we just have Congress directing the treasury to print X amount of money, you know, this month or for the next six months or whatever it is, and then Congress uh, appropriating that to all these different wonderful, worthy things, and that this would not only be simpler, but also more transparent. I think there's, there's a certain logic to that. There's definitely a certain logic to it, 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 whether you're progressive or, you know, right wing conservative, the hard money type. Um, I, you know, I have seen some people argue um, Joe Salerno. I don't I don't want to put words. In, I don't know if he actually was in favor, but he certainly was sympathetic and can understand the perspective of someone who argues, like you just said, Jeff, that, hey, let's th- there'd be more accountability. So this, you know, right now, yeah, it's, it's very confusing. Powell can get up there and, oh, gee, we're watching the inflationary pressure. But if it were just a matter of, no, if the government wants to run a budget deficit, then they just create that extra money. And if prices start rising too much and, gee, gasoline's expensive, meat's expensive mm-hmm. when I go to the grocery store, maybe the public would have a better idea that you know, to say, oh, well, maybe that's because, you know, we ran a trillion dollar deficit last year just created a trillion extra dollars and so mm-hmm. now we got to sop that up and maybe have you know tax hikes and things like that or spending cuts so it, it could be i guess in general i'm always leery of unleashing you know new government uh powers um so so yes in principle you 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 might think that that at least would be more transparent um but you know i guess that's sort of like say well why don't we make somebody a dictator and well, just, it, you know, then whatever happens, but, we know it's that guy's fault. And there's it, pros and cons to that kind of approach. It would be interesting to have someone running for Congress where you live. And, you know, one of their policies or positions you could ask them about would be like, what do you think about the spending for the next three months or the next six months or whatever? As opposed to, as you said, like, we don't feel like we have any control over what central bankers do and their dance mm-hmm. with the Treasury. That all seems very far away and faint. But there are more recent examples of what we could call uh modern greenbackers, right? Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, in, in a sense, 
is has has run on a platform of printing as opposed to borrowing. And so I believe Dennis Kucinich, who was in Congress up until not all that long ago, uh, w- was also a, a greenbacker in in that sense. So I, I'm I'm not sure that. Uh, it would be any worse than the system we have. The danger, as you point out, is we'd end up with both, right? Um, we'd end up with Congress allocating money, and we'd still end up with the Fed and the Treasury doing what they do. But I just wonder, um, where does this all go? I mean, it, it, do you think that fiscalism or Moslerism is going to gain traction? Or do you think, for example, we're going to enter an inflationary period in the 2020s that makes everybody really leery of this. And, and we actually do have people who identify the fiscal stimulus of er, the early COVID years as the source of our higher prices and our woes. So I, I do think um, that this framework, this way of explaining things just matter-of-factly, to me that does seem like it's spreading and uh, you know, I think it's gonna keep keep getting capturing more and more people in other words that uh, you mentioned this in the article that you just wrote on this that what that uh, economist Italian economist in the BBC was advocating was a, a pretty radical position you know even like Paul, for people who don't know like even Paul Krugman has battled with the MMT people and you know thought that oh wow they just they don't you know they don't understand basic economics here these people are crazy but when they the way she said it's just matter of factly and it, it does that does sound like, oh, yeah, the government can do stuff that a regular business or household can't do. So maybe that gives it all sorts of abilities. And, you know, the, the laws of economics don't apply or different laws apply. And it does seem to me that that framework is is catching on. And now it's becoming just more and more standard for people to talk like that. And it's not considered this fringe, kooky perspective. Um, so I do think that 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 is going to sweep. Now, you're you're right that. For a while there, with the rounds of QE, and there was no, you know, CPI wasn't blowing up, and people were, you know, running victory laps against guys like me who had been warning about, uh oh, you know, watch out for the dollar here. Um, since the the large price inflation of the last two years, I think some people have gone back to, oh yeah, maybe we just can't print print our way out of this. Maybe there is some limit here, um, and it's hard for me at this point to to guess which way it's going to go. I I think, unfortunately, the the fiscal hole is so deep they're going to have to try to print to get out of it. And then it's going to be kind of the worst of both worlds where they're going to slash spending and that's going to cause pain. And they're going to let, you know, the economy run hot as they say, euphemistically. Well, in a purely semantic sense, the first of the seven deadly innocent frauds of economic policy that Warren Moser identifies, he's right. Governments don't need to tax or borrow money to produce money. They don't need to. And that sovereign governments never need to go insolvent. They can pay their bills. They can pay their debts to the end of time, as long as they're not overthrown or have some sort of uh, civil unrest or something. So that's true. Uh, but let me give you a nice example from World War II. Uh, some of you may know a guy online named Peter Schmidt, who tweets a lot under the 90 tours, and he's someone familiar with the Mises Institute. And he gave a nice poignant example of during World War II, the Germans had spent incredible amounts of money, deficit spending, in order to build up their military armaments. And they had at the time the most advanced fighter plane called the ME-262. Uh, but what they couldn't do, no matter how much money they created in the economy during the war, uh, was get enough fuel to fly the plane. So this is a nice example of there's a resource constraint, not a money constraint, to how you operate an economy. And as a result, they were actually using oxen 
to pull these planes into position from the uh, hangar to get them ready for takeoff to save the fuel they would need to burn to run the engines from the hangar to the takeoff position. <laughs> so uh, all of a sudden, this brand new uh, high-tech fighter, jane, fighter plane needed a very low-tech form of transport. So it's you know, there's, the limits are not on currency. The limits are on resources. So when the Chancellor of Germany announces that the German government is going to provide an additional 100 billion euro for, I believe it's 100 billion, excuse me if it's 100 million, but I thought it was 100 billion euro for the Ukrainian it's war It's got to be billion, right? 100 million would buy five bullets. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, it's a new world, Bob. You know, if you go to... <laughs> You go to 7-Eleven, everything went up. Uh, you know, that doesn't create any new planes. It doesn't create any new missiles. It doesn't create anything that the Ukrainian fighting forces actually want. It just creates some new euro. And as I point out in the article, they can, they can print euro to stack from here to the moon uh, starting today. And that in and of itself won't create any new goods or services. So all that said... Uh, the idea of wealth being the productive portion of the economy, the ability of an economy to produce things, uh, at the heart of that, Bob, is Say's Law. And I would say that Say's Law, the idea that production precedes consumption and the idea that production creates its own demand, this is from the French economy Jean-Baptiste Say, uh, the idea being that your own production, you go out and work at a job and you get a paycheck, let's say, your own production gives you the ability to consume because then you get that paycheck. Uh, it seems to me that so much of modern economics, whether it's Piketty, whether it's Mosler, whether it's Dr. Mazzucato, whether it's Stephanie Kelton, the MMTers, is just based on trying to negate or deny the basic principle of Say's Law, where so much of the Austrian viewpoint is rooted in or even founded on Say's Law. So these, these two competing worldviews, one of them is about production, one of them is about stimulus and demand and consumption. And no matter how much we, no matter how many new camps, no matter how many schools of economics there are, no matter whether you call it neoliberalism, it seems to me that that's the inescapable fundamental question here that neither side has won in terms of answering. Yeah, and it's, so you're right, that there, are a lot, there was a lot of wisdom in that sort of classical tradition, you know, Say's Law being a prime example of it, and that for somebody who just, grows up reading newspaper accounts where they're thinking of, oh, recessions when there's a, a slump in spending. And gee, if only we could get everyone to go to treat it like it's Christmas every month, then you know, you'd never have mm -hmm. a downturn. And the, Say's insights are, are critical for understanding what's wrong with that. And and yes, there are complications. The, the money has a role to play, right? It's not that we all just literally show up with the stuff we made in our shop and directly trade it for the things we want, that you know, money is involved and that complicates things. But it doesn't change the, you know, the fundamental lessons from the insights of say and others like that. Uh, it's because again, like I, I said earlier, Jeff, there's this sort of switching back and forth. Uh, I don't want to say bait and switch because it makes it sound like they're doing it intentionally. I don't know if they are, but yeah, on the one hand, the MMT camps say, look, all we're, we're just making the basic point that governments, you know, they, they don't need to, they won't bounce checks, right? The U S treasury, you know, it never needs to worry about not having enough money. The Fed can just create it. That's we're not saying that magically, you know, makes more uh, oil available or, or so forth. But we're just saying that's not the issue. OK, but again, economist Murray Rothbard knew that it's not that this is, is a revelation. And also too, strictly speaking, a family household, you know, a husband and wife sitting down saying, oh, gee, 
we're looking at the budget here. We just don't have enough. The guy could say, you know, oh, well, I'll just put on a ski mask and go rob the, the convenience store down the street. So who says that we need to go get a new job? No, we don't. That's just an art of. And he, so did he contribute to the conversation by saying that, by pointing out that technically the real constraint is that eventually people come and throw me in a cage? It's not that we have to satisfy our budget constraint. No, that's that's goofy. Right. And so likewise, yes, strictly speaking, it's not running out of dollar bills it's the fact that the government is reallocating resources if they print money that's taxation through another means and so ultimately you know the, the more the government spends the less is available for the private sector those trade-offs are going to be there no matter what that's the, the lesson and sure if for somebody who doesn't know how it works if you point out that strictly speaking they can print money fine but that doesn't really change what the essence of the trade-offs are just like again the couple sitting there it's not really helping to point out well, technically, we don't even need to get a loan. I can just go, you know, rob a store. Yeah, that's a true statement, but that doesn't really alter what the economic realities are. And certainly, we don't want to tell people just go rob stores, and that's a way to get around this constraint that you thought was, you know, existed last week. So, likewise, just telling governments around the world just print money, stop thinking that you need to balance your budget, at least in the long run. That's actually going to make things worse. Well, we'll wrap this up, but it's interesting that. As Austrians, we oftentimes about talk about descriptive economics versus prescriptive. And yet what the MMTers and Moserites are doing is descriptive of what governments can do. It's not necessarily descriptive of the underlying economic reality. Per Bailen likes to point this out. I mean, what's the underlying reality? What's the actual resources? What, what's the actual wealth involved? So in that sense, um, there's something very strange and semantic about us. And when even a Paul Krugman has his doubts about the program, I will point out that he quieted down quick because he was savaged as an older white guy for sounding condescending to Stephanie Kelton, who is the leading light of MMT. She's a younger female economist. And so he got beat down, you know, with this idea like, oh, economics is full of these old white dudes and they want to tell us all how the economy works. And that's not true. And, and he shouldn't be mansplaining to her. And so I've noticed that the only female economists which are advanced or forwarded uh, in popular culture or in mainstream media, that you have to be left-wing. I mean, you look at Lael Brainerd, who's about ready to leave the Fed. Uh, you look at Stephanie Kelton. Janet Yellen, of course, was celebrated. Um, Christine Lagarde at the ECB. Uh, females who are of the more right uh, side of the equation or more free market, uh, look, at the, look at Judy Shelton. For example, she had some small appearances on Fox during the Trump years, but she was absolutely savaged in the financial press for daring to say some, you know, some slightly good things about gold and questioning whether the FOMC at the Fed could really had the knowledge to, to figure out how to set interest rates. So she questioned interest rate setting policy, and that, that alone was enough to have her just absolutely savaged and dismissed. So this idea that uh, female economists are advanced on uh, platforms like the BBC. Well, that's true if they say the right things. Judy Shelton's not part of that circle. She's not from Wharton, Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge. You know, she's from University of Utah. And in these uh, BBC economist circles, that's like being from Mars. So let's not let's not kid ourselves about what kind of females are actually acceptable. Uh, in the economics mainstream. It's only the ones who toe the line. So all that said, uh, Bob, we will provide a link to your interview with Warren Mosler. We will provide a link to this article, A Permanent Wartime Economy. 
And I think if you give uh, Mosler a chance and read him, uh, you might you might be surprised at uh, you know how the, the level of cl- clarity there there seems to be on the surface, and how uh, maybe we are just sort of talking past each other as Bob suggests in his remarks to Mosler. So Bob, I want to thank you for uh, joining us. Oh, I forgot. We'll also link to your 2012 American Conservative article on Greenbackers, and uh, let people digest some of this. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Human Action Podcast. Thanks, and have a great weekend. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.